This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli. Today, we're going to be playing buy or sell with some takes on the Eastern Conference's 15 teams. So Dan and I are going to alternate as we go through these teams alphabetically and put forth a, a statement, whether about an individual player, the team as a whole, future trade aspirations, whatever the case may be, something where we feel it can justifiably be bought or sold and see where the other person stands. And if debates ensue, then debates ensue. Before we get into that, though, how's it going, Dan? I am doing well. This was a good exercise because, and from since we have a preview of what each other was doing, I think there was one instance where we each ate the low-hanging fruit because we had to, but we both pretty much tried to go off the at least something that was a little bit different than what the the national narrative might be for each team. And so that was like a fun thought exercise. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree with that. I, there was some low-hanging fruit picked, cough, cough, Bradley Beal, cough, cough. But it is what it is. Uh, how are you doing, though? I'm doing pretty well. I, I was telling you before we started to record that I my my brother and his wife had control of our toddler for the morning, and it was like the first time in – probably six months or so that my wife and I had free time where neither of us were working and it was so freeing. It's amazing how like after you turn 25 or whatever it is, that free time is just so scant. It's depressing. Every time my two-year-old doesn't take his nap, I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Like, enjoy that while it lasts. I wish I could take naps now. Right. That's my biggest mistake as a, as a young kid was wanting to grow up. What a dumbass uh, I, know. I was. Like it's like how when you're really young, your parents don't know anything, and then you quickly realize sometimes that they do know stuff, or like any authority figure in your life, you know, like <laughs> that mentality shifts so much. Yeah, I would do. I people and people need to find more free time for themselves. There's like a stigma. I know there are some people that are really good about, it, but there's a stigma about doing nothing or taking mental health days, and it's okay. And I'm part of the problem because I feel like if I'm doing nothing, I'm wasting time. But like, you're very bad at doing nothing. Yes, I'm terrible at it. As as are you. Um, the stuff that you get done while having a child all, never ceases to amaze me. But we are endorsing our listeners to take some time for yourself. It's healthy. You know, listen to a podcast or two. Like yeah. I've heard of this good one called Hardwood Knox. Well, it's mediocre, but yeah, that's fair. Better than all. Neither of us are good at selling this podcast. Yeah, it's terrible, but. Look, and we're going to get even worse as we go through these teams with buy or sell. Are you ready to get started there? Let's do it. Let's start with the Atlanta Hawks, where I'm going to say that the Atlanta Hawks are disappointing primarily because 
the many injuries that have plagued this roster, ranging from Danilo Gallinari to Rajon Rondo to Chris Dunn to Anyeka Okongwu to Clint Capella, have prevented them from establishing continuity with so many new pieces. I'll buy that. And it's, I did call, I did, Trey Young has been one of the more disappointing players, at least until recently, when you looked at what he was shooting from three, what he was shooting on his floaters. It's okay to admit that. I don't think it's going to continue. I think his job gets easier. And as you, I mean, look, to not have Gallinari or Bogdanovich at the same time, the two players who were most responsible in theory for alleviating the ball handling workload on Trey Young, I don't know what else you're necessarily supposed to point toward. Maybe the dynamic between him and John Collins is a long term concern, but. I think insofar as they ever get close to full strength, my guess would be that they'll be fine, especially, you know, Clint Capella has been playing really well for them of late. This could be a situation where maybe they decide to need to trade, but if they can get Bogdanovich and Gallo healthy, I, you know, I don't, I don't really even know what to take away from this. The, the Gallo contract where it's like this is going to be the 10th time in 13 years he doesn't play in the equivalent of 70 games, but it's such a short-term investment. They could view it as a two-year deal if they're willing to, I think he's guaranteed four or five million in the third. I'm just not super alarmed with Atlanta right now. I think I'm going to slightly sell it. I think there there are more overarching concerns here. Like I'm not entirely convinced that Lloyd Pierce is the right coach for this team between the locker room dysfunction and or the reported locker room dysfunction, I should say, and it's just some of the the lack of effort that we've seen mixed with some weird rotations late in games. Like this team hasn't really blown out the teams that it should given the level of talent on the roster and it just seems like Trey Young in particular hasn't played with the confidence that he had last year the floaters haven't been falling he's been taking a few too many hero shots almost like he's searching for something like it's not a heat check so much as I hope I get hot check (laughs) uh and I don't have real like long term this team is definitely going to miss the playoff concerns but I think there's something more going on here than just the injuries. And look, it does – a real cause for concern would be what if Cleveland and New York are actually just this much better than people thought? Then you're all of a sudden just not guaranteed to have this this spot in that you know play-in chase, let alone a top six seed mm-hmm. that would guarantee you a playoff spot. Yeah, so I think we're like kind of on the same page where it's like a mediocre buy and a mediocre sell here. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that I'm a little bit more optimistic on them than you. I find that kind of hysterical. Moving on to Boston, I'm focusing on Jalen Brown here. Buy or sell Jalen Brown as a top 25 player in the NBA? Yeah, I'm going to buy it. You know, I was was looking at your rankings for the top 100 players going into this season, and you had Jalen Brown at 32 uh, coming off a bubble ranking where our, a pre-bubble ranking where you had him at 30. And I'm looking at these top 25 names because it's always hard to like wrap your head around those numbers initially. So the, the guys around 25, Jamal Murray at 27, Chris Middleton at 26, Kyle Lowry at 25, Donovan Mitchell at 24, Rudy Gobert at 23. Yeah, I think he's in that tier. The leap that he's made as a scorer, a, a self-sufficient scorer, is a profound one. And when you couple that with the advancement that he's continued to make as a distributor, as a game-changing defender, he's a complete player. You can put him in maybe a a slight tier below Jason Tatum at this point. Like there's actually a conversation about who's the better player on that team some nights. I think he's I think he's in that top 25 conversation if he's not locked into it. Yeah, I I buy it as well, which probably could have been given away by the fact that I suggested it. He's just having like a monstrous season and he's cooled off a little bit, but he's still averaging 26.9 points, 3.7 assists, shooting f- almost 42% from three. He's hitting 56.8% of his pull-up twos. And like, that seems far more sustainable than the like 80% he was hitting before. 
there's his game just seems more dynamic. It wasn't just the product of, oh, Kemba was gone. There's a better feel for it there. Uh, he's been incredibly efficient on his drives. He's shooting 59.1% on drives, and that is among 58 players who are taking at least four shots out of drives per game. That is seventh best in the league. And so that's just, I mean, he's shooting better on drives than Giannis right now. And look, it's early. So Jordan Clarkson and Tyler Hero are in that company as well. But it's just super, when you can do what he does, he's so plug and play on offense. And now there's the dynamic where he doesn't feel just plug and play anymore, coupled with what he does on defense. I It's a hard buy for me. Yeah, I'm pretty confident in the buy there as well. Uh, for the Brooklyn Nets, since James Harden arrived via that mega blockbuster trade, the Nets have beaten the Orlando Magic by seven points. They've beaten the Milwaukee Bucks by two points in one of the best games of the season so far. They've lost to the Cleveland Cavaliers in double overtime when Colin Sexton went off. Then they lost to the Cavaliers again. Then they beat the Miami Heat by four points. A lot of mixed results. Are we buying or selling the fit of the new big three in Brooklyn? I buy the offensive fit. The one ball stuff was super low-hanging fruit. And I get some of the concern where it's, yeah, long-term, one of these guys has to be the third option. And who just knows how well that sits? But it's They wanted to play together. It's going to work on offense. The concern for me would just be, what does this team look like defensively where they already had some some problems? If you look at, you know, go baseline, not even just their defensive rebounding, but like who are they who do they you want to close with at center? Is it really DeAndre Jordan who's just not moving that well? Do you go with a Kevin Durant at the five, a Jeff Green at the five? What does that do to your defense? We seem to get pummeled on the glass in those minutes. I buy the idea that they're a good fit on offense. I sell this idea that we don't need to be concerned about their defense because they're just going to be so elite on offense. I think I'm going to sell it overall. It it feels to me like an issue of diminishing marginal returns here where these guys are all so good, but they do take away from each other's games. You know, ultimately like can Kyrie Irving thrive as an off ball threat? Sure. Can James Harden thrive as an off ball threat? Absolutely. Can Kevin Durant? We know that that's the case. That's fine. But just the fit with, with Harden and Kyrie in particular, like you're going to have to alternate possessions on who's leading the charge. And you know, what if you're not picking those spots, right? Especially with a first year head coach and Steve Nash, like it, it feels a little bit too combustible for me. And if we're saying that this, this trio is immediately capable of pushing the nets to the top of the Eastern conference or competing for a title right away, like which I think is the only reasonable expectation given the capital invested in this trio. I'm going to sell that right now. That's interesting. There's, I've actually been worried like if I'm too low on them. Could their defense be better than expected long-term because their, you know, their shot profile is so good there. They have the their, last time I checked, they were from cleaning the glass fifth in location effective field goal percentage. They were like, a, you know, the stuff at the rim, they've been allowing more looks there, it feels like, but they don't allow a ton of threes. They're coaxing teams in mid-range jumpers. And so there's, I feel like there's a chance that maybe not just you, but me might be too low, and I'm probably a little bit more optimistic. Uh, it is, but I mean, you touch on good points where it's, there's going to be functional changes to how they play. And it seems early on, one, we've really only seen the sample size is larger with two of them than three. I think they only played two games together with all three of them, if I'm correct. Uh, So uh, it does seem like James Harden is going to be kind of the point guard and he's been just passing a ton and table setting. Is that going to be viable over the longer haul where, you know, maybe he's not scoring as much when all three of them are in the game. 
I'm interested, I'm very interested to see who gets the last shot in these. There's options there during crunch time, but I'm I want to see them in more situations where tight games at the end, all three of them are on the court, and how the offense is run that way. Because I think you know if you're Harden and you're counting on him to run point, his first instinct is going to be to try and create a bucket in that specific situation. I would think. The talent here is unbelievable as you put more cohesive pieces around them in future seasons rather than trying to adapt the the incumbents on the roster to the new triumvirate and charge. I have more confidence in them next year than I do this year. So I, I think my hot take here is that this isn't an Eastern Conference Finals team this year. I don't know if that's a hot take. I, I think because you can name Philly, Milwaukee a fully healthy Miami, maybe Boston. Those are all teams that could give them problems. I mean you Indiana the, could. Yeah, it's just with the Warren injury, we don't know how Avert's going to fit. Uh, that's, you know, there's they don't feel, for a team that has three, what is Kyrie Irving at his peak? You want top 15, three top 15 guys? Yeah, absolutely. It, they, they feel beatable. <laughs> can I can I go on a, on a, on a side conversation here before we, before we jump to Charlotte? Um, you know, I, I was talking with friend of the podcast, Jacob Bourne here last night. Um, and, and we were talking about Kyrie Irving's game and how it feels like it's one of the most aesthetically pleasing games in NBA history. Just the way that he dribbles, the way that he finishes, the wrong-footed finishes, everything that he does makes him look like an absolute master of basketball. And I'm curious if there's anyone you can think of where the ratio of aesthetic pleasantness to effectiveness has been more warped. Oof. Could Jamal Murray be up there? Maybe. Because, like, conversely, Kevin Durant plays, like, the smoothest, easiest game I've ever seen. And it 100% translates to effectiveness. And, like, Kyrie's doesn't. Like, as, as amazing as he is, he can just put on an absolute show, and you're like, wow, they're, they're ahead by two points. That's not to say he's not a great basketball player. As you said, like, a top 15 guy. I don't disagree with that. But, like, the, the beauty of his game leads you to believe that he should be even better. I would I would totally agree with you there. That's and some of it is like the effort on defense has been it's swung wildly over the past feels like few years. Where was he had the season in Boston where he tried really hard, but then the second season not so much. Last year was whatever. This year it feels like he's been engaged at different points. But yeah, I mean that's a that's an interesting theory that I haven't given enough thought of it to come up with an with an alternative. But you may be right. We'll have to think on it more. Are you ready for Charlotte? We'll, we'll revisit that. Are you ready for Charlotte? I'm always ready for Charlotte. Buy or sell, Miles Bridges is the most important player long-term not named LaMelo Ball to this team. I'm going to sell it. Okay. I think that I think that he could be and that there's a very real possibility he's the second best player on this team for a long time. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to put Terry Rozier in that position because he's already been paid. Because if, if he is an absolute bust, which it does not look like he's going to be based on this season's early returns, that's really crippling. And you could say the same thing about Gordon Hayward, where he's been paid so much money if he doesn't live up to that contract. Because Miles Bridges has not had that max extension, I don't think that you can put him up there because they could feasibly move on if he doesn't work out. The thing is, I mean, Terry Rozier has one more year left on his deal. And so to go long-term with that, I guess the Gordon Hayward pick makes sense. I thought you might have pivoted to uh, uh, Devontae Graham. was going to be a free agent this year. He's perked up a little bit over his last few games. He couldn't really hit anything for a good chunk of the season. But I but buy you know it. exactly why I'm not picking him. 
because you know oh no he runs away like grant riller step up <laughs> i thought that was also going to be the name that came up because i'm selling because of grant riller the other thing i thought maybe might come up is that you could buy into the idea that whoever they take in the 2021 draft even though they're winning a little bit more right now than expected that's going to be their most long-term important player but but bridges this year has just been really good overall he's hitting his three uh i I think he's shown that he's definitely more than just this this power dunker you'd still like to see him make more of his like or there'd be less predictability to his games like can he do more than straight line driving and can he hit when he does can he hit those at a higher clip but he gives them a bunch of switchability on the defensive end um maybe not necessarily someone wants to you want him covering bigs full-time but he can definitely defend like basically two through five or three through five at this point and so i do feel like there's a little element of underappreciation to his game i'm going to buy loosely because i kind of want to pick whoever they take in the 2021 draft. But that just feels like we're not even there yet. We don't know where their pick is going going to be. Hayward, I feel like, is fair, obviously. If they do invest in Devontae Graham, there's a chance that it, it becomes him. We have not talked about P.J. Washington yeah. either. Um, that ship may have sailed for them. But uh, it's interesting that you can look at this team and come up with so many different options for who their second most important player is over the long haul. And it, I think it's also interesting that it's taken this little time to be like, yeah, like LaMelo Ball is definitely number one on that list. Like, it, it's impossible to watch even one LaMelo Ball game right now and not be like, yeah, he gets it. Unless you're James Borrego, who was mad about his turnovers and then mad about his defensive effort. I'm just, you've played Devontae Graham. to be said for, for holding the superstar accountable, the superstar rookie accountable right off the bat. It rings like a little hollow. A little harder on him, but it, yeah. It rings a little hollow when you've played Devontae Graham so heavily while he's been going through his own slump and he's going to actively hurt you on defense and he was shooting like negative 8% around the basket at one point. So that's where it rings a little hollow for me. I don't, you know, if they told me that he was going to come off the bench all year in Charlotte, I might be okay with that just because it does, in theory, simplify his role, which I don't think is a bad thing for a rookie. But those comments were... I don't know. That, that caught me a little off guard. I get it, but like, did that need to be? If he said it behind the scenes, I think it would have made like make the decision to not really play him that much, and then talk to him about it. You didn't have to go to the media and light this kid up. Yeah, that's fair. We are so moving on, on to, to uh, Detroit, Chicago. Oh, Chicago! Wow, I'm, all, I'm out of whack. Sorry. You're trying to skip a couple teams here. I am. Uh, so yeah, with with Chicago, you know, you can look at this roster and and find a couple intriguing names as as long term pieces between you know Kobe White as much as he struggled at times this season, Zach Levine who's on fire, Patrick Williams, Laurie Markinen, Wendell Carter Jr. Though that ship seems to be sailing a little bit. So my my question is, are you are you buying or selling that Chicago has at least one centerpiece of a future contender on its roster right now? Centerpiece doesn't have to mean like the number one guy right i think it does oh. like like the, the top guy on a contender is on the roster right now you can win a title with one of these guys at their peak i'm gonna sell zach levine has been spectacular but i don't think and he's still young uh this is his what is this his age 25 26 season right now mm. and his playmaking is improved. his age turns 26 in march uh <sighs> I, I just can't imagine him being, even now, like the offensive splits with him are not great because I don't know how much he actually uplifts his teammates. I think you have to want that player to be Kobe White or Patrick Williams. I would argue Patrick Williams might have a better chance because ah, he's not going to influence the game as much on offense, even if he is on defense. That's a tough one. I'm going to sell, but I don't feel great about it. I just don't think Zach Levine is going to end up being the number one guy for a contender. And that's I'm just... Going- 
that's not even I think he's been spectacular this year. I, I want to make that I want to make that clear. I'm going to tentatively buy here. Um, I think that Patrick Williams has enough potential to reach that stage, even though we definitely haven't seen enough to assertively say that he will. Uh, but I, I do think Levine can be. We've been we were really complimentary of him the last episode we did together. Uh, just the leap that he's made, which is really more of a gradual climb to this level. Um, I, I do think he's that good, and I think he's young enough that he can fit the timeline of whatever Chicago does next. The, he does not float everyone around him enough, but I, I think that's at least partially due to the lack of continuity that they've had, you know, shifting coaches and the lack of established talent around him. If you're if you're putting a cohesive rotation around Zach Levine, I, I think he can be that guy in all caps. His teammates are shooting better than 39% on threes off his passes. My whole thing is, look at how good he's been this year. Where is Chicago right now? 7-9, 22nd in net rating per cleaning the glass. The offense is still 17th. Uh, it's a hair better with him on the floor, I do believe. I'll double-check that to make sure that I'm not lying to you guys. I understand that it's a talent thing, but if you are you like, is there anyone – that's on the roster currently, then that's going to work with the iteration of the team that has Zach Levine as its number one option and is contending. Patrick Williams. But yeah, I mean, I think that's all you can confidently say right now. Like, is Laurie Markkinen going to be back on a new contract? Is Kobe White actually good? Like, with those, I, I'm very, I they should trade Laurie, very much doubt about. They should trade Larry Markkinen, right? I don't know that they should be, as a, from a team perspective, I, I hope every player gets so. paid, but I don't know why they would give him a, a ton of money it doesn't seem to make sense for them and yeah they're a hair better on offense uh, plus 0.3 points per possession with Levine on the floor and I don't think at this point that's clearly not an indictment of him there's I never well, thought I just, he was I don't I, I can't watch him anymore and think empty stats guy I don't know that I ever put I thought there was something to it because his teams are just never substantially uplifted when he's on the court but just watching the way he's played this season like that just can't be it I Maybe I'm just having a tough time because of what this team is doing right now, having a tough time envisioning. And they've been a lot better since the beginning of the season. So some of these numbers are probably dragged down by how they looked at the start of the year. I'm still I'm going to sell. I don't feel great about it because I thought I was high enough on Zach Levine. But number one on a contender is a pretty lofty goal. And that's kind of saying that he's going to get to be like a top 15 guy or a top 20 guy or something. And I don't know that he ever gets to that level. But I do think it says a lot that it seems like a reasonable question right now. Fair. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime. Cavaliers, I have, I'm wondering if this one caught you off guard. When I told you it before we started, Colin Sexton is better and is going to remain better than Jamal Murray. It didn't catch me off guard, just because I think that those are are guys who are definitely trending in opposite directions right now, and I'm actually going to buy it. I, uh, I I have concerns about Jamal Murray's inconsistency at this point. You know, we were expecting that. This could be the year that coming off that remarkable bubble performance that he showed that he could really thrive in the regular season and elevate a team. And it really does fall on his shoulders that the Nuggets are, are struggling to remain above 500 with Nikola Jokic playing MVP caliber basketball. Like that, that's, 
a testament to how much Murray has struggled at times, along with other pieces throughout the roster and the the lack of availability from Michael Porter Jr., et cetera, et cetera. But meanwhile, Sexton is just lighting it up and beating good teams on his shoulders. He He's showing that he can fill multiple roles out of the backcourt that he can be a number one scorer without sacrificing efficiency, without sacrificing any semblance of efficiency, that he can work cohesively alongside Darius Garland and elevate the play of others around him. Like I'm, I'm buying him as an offensive superstar. I'm buying this too. And there's, I, look, there's the obviousness of it. Just when you look at his numbers this season, but Overall, this year, there are a total of seven players who are shooting better than 50% inside the arc, at least um, 40% beyond the arc, and averaging more than 25 points per game. Kevin Durant, Colin Sexton, CJ McCollum, Kyrie, Jalen Brown, Kawhi, and Joel Embiid. And the, the thing that I will note is that he's coming off a season where he was one of just a handful of players to do something similar last year. He wasn't averaging 25 points per game, but there were only six players who... Um, attempted as many threes as him and then shot at least 38% from three and 50% inside the arc while averaging over 20 points per game. That was Middleton, Cat, Dame, Brandon Ingram, Jalen Brown, and of course Colin Sexton was there. Look, Jalen Brown appearing twice too. That's another argument in favor of him. This is not, his offensive stardom is not news. He's done the two things that have really, or three things really that have sold me. I don't know the viability of Darius Garland, Colin Sexton long-term defensively, then again, the personnel they now have around them with Isaac Okoro, Larry Nance Jr., and Jared Allen, maybe that doesn't matter. I also think Colin Sexton's been better on defense this year, at least on the ball. Um, I'll, the, I'll second that. The yeah. second thing is I don't know if he's ever the guy that you want to trust to create off the dribble, but he's so efficient off the catch it doesn't matter. And just something to monitor is he's shooting 47% on a bunch of pull-up two-pointers this year, and then 52.6% on two pull-up three-point attempts per game. So again, I don't know that he's ever going to be that traditional from scratch scorer. I don't know one that he needs to be, and the indicators this season are fantastic for him. And this might be the biggest one of all. His passing since sort of the end of last year, it has gotten better. And the thing that I looked up for this is so last season – he was averaging 13.9 drives per game. He shot fine. It was 47.6%. Um, he passed on 32.4% of his drives for an assist rate of 6.7. This year, he is averaging 16.7 drives. He is playing, I think he's less of a, he's, he's averaging substantially more minutes, but he's driving, so he's still attacking. He's shooting 52.1% on them, but he's passing on 42% of his drives with an assist rate of 10. So to up the percentage of drives that you're passing on is actually more difficult, I would argue, as the number of drives increases. The fact that he's doing that, no, I don't think you need to look at him as a point guard. Because First of all, he's not a point guard. And so as someone who's your two guard, tilts toward off guard, whatever you want to call him, he's he's improved enough there where it's like, okay, we were wondering whether the Cavs had this long-term cornerstone of the future. Will he be, you know, you're asking about Zach Levine being the best player on a contender. I don't know if we can ask that about Colin Sexton yet, but it's interesting enough to where it's like, damn, Cleveland is, Cleveland's future is a lot different based off what Colin Sexton has done the past two years. I want to be clear. It's not even just about this season. And he's had a level of consistency on offense where, yeah, Jamal Murray is going to have those step backs and there's just more to him there. And I think that he'll, you know, probably have higher peaks. How long do those peaks last? And so there's just been that level of consistency from Colin Sexton that we've never seen from Jamal Murray, who arguably might be one of the most entertaining, but albeit roller coaster rides in the NBA. 
And I think it's important to note that when we ask this question, we are splitting hairs. It's not like Colin Sexton is blowing Jamal Murray out of the water. They're both all-star talents. Like that's the important thing here is that we're we're putting Colin Sexton into that same tier that Jamal Murray has been occupying for a little while now. Yeah, I just think that he needs to be viewed in like a, a which is by the way, it's not to say that I was at, that or either of us were out in front of this. I ranked him as the hundredth best player coming into the season. I think we ended up at our panel. Uh, Jamal Murray. I'm pretty was, sure I tried to argue out of including him. <laughs> I don't remember that, but um, I don't doubt it. And we probably had Jamal Murray. I don't know what I'm talking about. He was probably in the 30s, early 40s, and so that's a huge discrepancy. He was 27 because I think I didn't. I, didn't I mention that on the uh, the Boston section of this? Maybe of players going into the bubble, he might have been. There was no way he was. I would have bumped him out of the top 27 real quick. So uh, I that's a huge gap to make up. But to say that he's going to be better than him. That probably says more about the recalibration of Jamal Murray, maybe, than Sexton. It says it, it says a great deal about both. I'm not trying to crap all over Jamal Murray, but Colin Sexton has flown under the radar since last year. Like this isn't just a this season thing. The defense, yeah. The passing took a little while later into last season, but like that's even been more sustainable. So and if he finishes the year putting up numbers like this, 25 while shooting so efficiently, wow. Just wow. Right. Right. So moving on to the Detroit Pistons, uh, they are 3-13 and 13 at the time of recording, but their Pythagorean wins, which are based on points scored and allowed, they, they've underperformed. They have played more like a 6-10 and 10 team. Their net rating shows the same thing, where they have a minus 4.6 net rating, which isn't totally at the bottom of the NBA. So are they bad enough that they don't need to make changes, or are they going to make big changes at the trade deadline. So my, my buy sell is that Detroit will be stripped for parts at the deadline, specifically referring to Blake Griffin, Derek Rose, Mason Plumlee and DeLon Wright. I'm going to sell just because maybe Derek Rose, just because he's on an expiring contract, but they kind of need him after the Killian Hayes injury, because you only have DeLon Wright. You are relying a ton on Jeremy Grant. I don't know who's going to want Blake Griffin's contract at this point without getting a sweetener. So I don't, I actually don't think that they're going to end up, gutting it uh, the spicier take would be why don't you try and capitalize on jeremy grant's trade value right now because he's been basically the most effective isolation scorer in the league i don't know how long that could continue what you do bring up an interesting point about is detroit despite being two and ten is fourth in clutch minutes played and so there might be an element of oh could they just get better as the year goes on do you mean two and ten in the clutch just to be clear yeah two and ten in the clutch sorry okay. they're two and ten in those minutes but they've been to crunch time in 10 games which is a 12 games which is also a league high and the total minutes they've spent in the in the clutch of um excuse me 48 is fourth in the nba as i stumbled through that so maybe it would behoove them to get rid of a Derrick Rose, but like they're not really, and or maybe a Plumley. Like those might be players that are possibly helping them. I'd be a little bit surprised if they moved Delon Wright, just because I think since he's under contract for next year, I believe, um, and you don't really have another point guard option now because of the Killian Hayes injury for the moment. That it just makes more sense to keep it, and what are you going to get for him? So I'm going to sell it. I think they end up moving Derrick Rose. Would just And since that's the only player I really see them moving, I don't know that I, I could buy into the fact that they're going to strip it down. Yeah, I'm going to sell as well. I don't think that you can move Blake Griffin without attaching sweeteners. I think Derrick Rose is too important, but they do need to move something just because they're a little better than they want to be, even if the record thus far doesn't indicate it. I think Mason Plumley is going to be the, the lone significant name move from Detroit at the deadline. That's interesting. There are some teams that could use a 
a, a wildly big. It'd be funny after everyone dumping all over that contract that he ends up being moved for like, even if it's just like some positive value. Like, he's been pretty solid so far this year. He's been good. He's, a, he's still a very good passer. And I think yeah. he communicates well with his teams based off of, uh, his teammates, based off the game, pissing games I've seen this year. This one, moving on to Indiana, unless you have anything to add on Detroit there. No, go for it. Miles Turner will finish in the top two or three, if you want to go that deep, uh, of Defensive Player of the Year voting at the end of the season. I want to make that clear, not where it stands right now. I just I want to ask before we answer, what, what's making you ask this question? So I got shit on by Miles Turner himself. I, I doubt he paid any mind to who wrote it, even though my name was in the tweet that Bleacher Report put out, because I did predictions for the awards based off what we've seen this season. Now, the two, the, the one change that I would have made is maybe I should have just done a ladder because of the way that uh, Bleacher Report programmed the article. And as writers, we don't, we have control over what we're writing about, but headlines are changed, which I don't. That's editorial. That's totally fine with me. I should have done more of a ladder where if the season were to end today or right now, who's leading? In which case, I would have had Miles Turner's Defensive Player of the Year. I did not have him in my top three. I made it clear to say that he was fourth. He has been an absolute monster. I had Embiid, Gobert, and Anthony Davis ahead of him. It, Pacers fans were irate. Miles Turner wasn't happy, but what do you accept? expect a player to say the Pacers even quote tweeted Bleacher Reports article my mentions were a tire fire for probably less than 24 hours it wasn't too long and so I'm just curious where looking at the end of the season like do you see what he's doing as sustainable to the point where he's going to finish you know top two or three in defensive let alone win the award and top uh in defensive player of the year I don't think that he will finish in the top three I think that there will be a, a justifiable case to have him there but the block rate that he's at right now is like unprecedented in the modern day NBA. And I don't think that he or anyone else is capable of sustaining that for a full season. And as good as the Pacers have been with him on the floor, they're still not a great defensive team overall. They have a middling defensive rating. They've been vulnerable in a, a number of different ways to this point. Um, and without playing for a top tier defensive team, you generally struggle to garner the necessary votes. So will he be one of the three most impactful defensive players? Sure. Are we sure that he's going to finish the season in, in Indiana? No. Uh, there, there's just there's too much uncertainty and too many indicators that are just a little bit veering away from sustainability. And if you're not going to be on a top defensive team, you need to like lead the league in blocks by a wide margin to get consideration, which he's doing so far, but I'm not sure he's going to be able to sustain. There, and look, that's part of it, as people pointed out, because what's also tough is when you're doing the the three-player predictions is you're more inclined to spend time on why you're picking them as opposed to why you're not picking someone else. And so I mentioned that I don't think the Pacers' defense will hold at the elite level enough for Miles Turner to win it, even though the defensive... And look, I looked, while I was doing it, I looked up lineup data. There were two games that concerned me. It was the... Uh, Pacers game I think they lost to the Kings and it was their game was a loss to the the Suns maybe where they were their defense yeah their defense just wasn't great with Turner on the court that being said if you break up splits of what the defenses looked like when he plays without Oladipo who's not there anymore they're fine when he plays without Oladipo and Warren who's also injured at the moment it's it's great so he's very clearly in the discussion but where teams finish wrong or right I was trying to make it predictive on who I think was going to win if the Pacers, they're 12th in points allowed per possession right now for cleaning the glass, if they stay there, that's probably not high enough 
for him to garner the, the praise. Maybe he's just so good that it doesn't matter if his block rate sustains. The other thing is, I do, you know, and Caitlin Cooper of Indy Cornrows wrote a great article on this, how the Pacers were really limiting um, three-point efficiency without act- actively, like, they're preventing or they're preventing three-point attempts without really hugging the three-point line. They rely on Miles Turner a lot to do that, as she broke down. Please check out that article, Caitlin Cooper, Indy Cornrows. Go to her Twitter feed, at C2 underscore Cooper. But uh, they also, like, the ball containment, I think, is going to get iffier when you're subbing out eventually. Hopefully he's fine. Karis LeVert is going to be in there. You're subbing out Old Depot for Karis LeVert. And when Warren's healthy, too. Yeah, and look, he's been better defensively than it, so maybe he actually helps them. And and so that was the other thing is like we're going to see Miles Turner be really tested. He doesn't have the sample for uh, independent of Oladipo of this new team for me to say like he would have changed whatever sort of impact there was on this roster. And the other thing I'll note, it's not a problem. And I don't, I don't know that he would st- after moving Oladipo doesn't feel like they're going to make any moves. And he's averaging a career high thirty two point five minutes per game. If the offense remains sort of average to below average enough when he and Zabonis share the floor. Like, there are going to be some weird playing time decisions made, and are you going to gravitate towards perhaps someone who's averaging more minutes, uh, which I think happened. You know, if he was at 29.5 or 28.6 like he was the past two years, I don't expect him to drop down to that level, but that's going to factor into this as well. And I do think if you look at and talk about the other players, uh, when you look at Joel Embiid, feels like his pick-and-roll coverage is like a lot shiftier this year where it's not – just you know him being around the rim it's him coming out and doing things where teams are scared they won't even sometimes won't even bother driving or attempting like attempting floaters now is difficult with him on the court not just finishing at the rim and then the other thing that always gets lost with anthony davis and i think he probably has the strongest argument over a turner finish if you think that turner is going to win his functionality is just never going to be accurately displayed by deflections by rim protection numbers by even on off splits um, just because he's doing so much that he's not going to have all the counting stats or even advanced metrics that love him. And some of the lineups he's tasked with anchoring, you know, let's Kyle Kuzma has been a pretty good defender the past couple seasons. LeBron has been not so much this year, I would say, but just better defensively in LA the past this season and last than people would have expected. They have Wes Matthews. They don't have an elite wing defender. Anthony Davis changes so much on the perimeter in a different to being around the basket. And he can be everywhere at once simultaneously without compromising who he's actually supposed to be guarding. And the fact of the matter is there, he's he, you take the best defense in the league and he makes them stingier when he's on the court this year. I think it's by less than a point per 100 possessions. I don't care. That's so tough to make the best defense better. And I think Gobert's still underappreciated where people think, oh, he's he's not matchup proof. And meanwhile, he leads the league in short mid-range blocks this year. That's not a defining factor, but I think as of right now, it's a four-player race. And I would predict that Miles Turner is most likely to drop out of that. If you want to get into the notion of, well, will Embiid play in enough games, that's fine. I I'm I think it's a discussion. I'm going to sell the idea that he finishes top two. I don't know what to do with top three because now you're getting into there could be a lot of coin toss there. And there's a chance that I have in my top three to finish the season. And I want to make this clear. I'm not shitting on Miles Turner, who I think I've generally been higher on than the consensus. It's just that he's been so good defensively this year that I'm, I guess I'm lower on him, or I just don't know that it will sustain. So uh, this will be interesting to look at at the halfway mark after taking a look at it during the quarter poll. I so apologize for that rant, but I didn't have a forum to really defend myself. Twitter is not the place for nuance, so I may, I mostly ignored people getting mad. I did not ignore people getting mad that I called Trey Young disappointing this year so far in something I wrote. I was like, okay, he's still a great passer, and I think he's going to be fine, but like, let's not pretend that Trey Young hasn't underachieved relative to what Trey Young is. So what I heard from all of this is that you're admitting that 
you only left out Miles Turner to be a provocateur and you got the exact reaction you were hoping from not writing something you believe in, right? Like yeah, you're, 100%. you're going for that reaction. First of okay. all, the reason writers aren't rich is because we generally don't do that. Like I like if you're talking TV talking heads, writers aren't generally a persona. Maybe I guess what is that the the outdick coverage or whatever it is with Shmay Pravis or whatever his name is. Like there's the but if you're writing for people at ESPN who are writing, they're not trying to the writers themselves are not trying to be provocateurs. Like no one's assuming this. Those are for the TV shows, the, the discussions on there, maybe podcasts. I'm hoping at this point, Bill Simmons is playing a caricature of a human being though. I you mean, you don't get paid per click and all that. Like, no, that's the other thing. I don't get paid. I don't get paid per click everybody. So, um, I just, I, yeah, that was the funniest thing where it's like, you guys only cover big market teams. And I want people to know I picked within that article, I picked Nate Bjorken to win coach of the year. That's the other thing that was hysterical is that, no, I don't, I'm not saying that if you, you still disagree with me, I'm all for, I had some conversations with people who were, you know, had legitimate points. And I, I think that we can disagree without it being an insult. And I'm fine with Miles Turner saying this was disrespectful because what else is a player supposed to say? And he's been really, if the season ended today, he's probably top two in defensive player of the year at worst. I still think there's a chance Davis wins it. The only thing I have to add here is like, you know, when the Pacers Twitter account quote tweeted that and when Miles Turner quote tweeted that, like they didn't specify what they were upset about. So I'm just going to assume that there's raving dysfunction in Indiana <laughs> and they just hate the idea that their coach could be coach of the year. Like that's that's how I'm interpreting this. Like Miles Turner, he just doesn't like his coach. That's, that's, yeah. that's what it must be. He's mad that we didn't pick uh, Nate McMillan as coach of the year in Atlanta because Lloyd exactly. Pierce is going to get fired. The, the final thing I'll note and you've seen me at my most vulnerable moments when it comes to work, and I don't want, who cares? I'm like white male, the predominant um, demographic in this industry. Do not feel bad for me. The thing that I, and I'm, I'm normally Teflon when it's reader comments or people on Twitter. The thing that still kind of sucks is when I have mutual follows, like we follow each other, I've talked to people, and they're just shitting all over the article without one having read it because they're just tweet. And I get the game. I get that why it's tweeted out the way it is with graphics. I get it and I'm fine with it. But that's the one thing that's still just a little bit weird for me, bordering on not hurtful, but like that was the thing that stuck with me a little bit was seeing people that I follow and they follow me and they're just crapping all over it with clearly not having read it. And even if they disagreed, it was fine, but it was just, it was so easily dismissed by mutual files that I was like, Oh, all right. And that still happens. It happens with NBA 100 every year. But that's the thing that I need to get better at being Teflon for. Now, before we move on to, to Miami, this is just a great time for our, our PSA that, you know, to make Dan feel better, you should rate, review and subscribe to Hardwood Knox on wherever you're listening to these podcasts. Give him a follow at Dan Favalli and then be nice to him. <laughs> yeah, You don't need to be nice to me. That's fine. But yeah, definitely subscribe to this podcast. Juice those numbers up. Let's go. So the Miami Heat, I want to... Uh, dive a little bit into the weeds on this one just because i think there's such an interesting team where they're coming off an nba finals appearance not much about this roster is that different they're six and nine if the playoffs ended or if the playoff field was set sunday afternoon they would not be even in the play-in game in the eastern conference uh, so one thing i want to focus on here is their rebounding they're 23rd in total rebounding percentage. They're 29th in offensive rebounding percentage. They're 22nd in defensive rebounding percentage. Is that alone a flaw that can keep this team from the contender tier? I sell that idea that the rebounding alone would keep them out of it because I don't think – I would have to look at this, but I don't think they were this rebounding juggernaut last year either. And I think bigger concerns would be 
Tyler Hero's been finishing well when he's healthy, but what does the Tyler Hero point guard experiment do? Do you have enough shot creators? How reliant are you on Goran Dragic? Um, Bam Adebayo has been just, he's hitting his jumpers now too, which is terrifying if you're the rest of the league. Uh, the four spot, I think, ends up being an issue. Mo Harkless hasn't really, and I think he's in, he's out with a thigh injury at the moment, but like he hasn't played a ton, and that was the guy who basically replaced Jay Crowder and was always going to do that. They've been, uh, I've seen more of Casey Akpala and Precious Achua than I thought I was going to, and I, maybe that's not a bad thing, but the f- I, I think if you look at their power forward rotation, that would be the thing that would, or the guy who plays next to Bam in the front court. Let's put it that way, since I don't want to pigeonhole people to positions. That's going to be their biggest issue moving forward to me, and I will buy the idea that they will fall outside of that. What do we want to call the contender click, like the top four or five contenders? I would buy that that idea. I, we should note right now, though, that they are just decimated between injuries and health and safety protocols. Avery Bradley and Jimmy Butler are um, in the health and safety protocols. Tyler Hero's dealing with a neck injury. Harkless, thigh injury, Myers Leonard's shoulders injury, and Chris Silva has a hip injury. So they're just, they are banged up right now. And maybe they get better there. And the fact that they had a shorter offseason, but maybe you could sell it on do we make this about depth instead of rebounding? Whereas do they have the, the sort of pieces to navigate this year and still be fresh for the finals? Are they slow playing it now because they'll, they'll tick up moving forward. Something feels off here. And the fact maybe as they get healthier with band playing like this, this will all be overly manufactured concern. I wouldn't have them. I I will buy the idea that they are not in that primary contender circle. I'm going to buy that. They're not in the primary contender circle. And that this is the reason Uh, I, I do think like some of it is interconnected. Like the lack of depth does bleed into this area because there's only so many areas that you can exert energy in when you're playing with a skeleton crew, which they've had to do on a number of occasions. But this was a really good rebounding team last year. Uh, they finished this, the regular season fifth in the league in total rebounding percentage. Uh, they were not good on the offensive class, on the offensive glass, mostly by design. But they did not allow second chance opportunities. Only the Philadelphia 76ers and Milwaukee Bucks were better at grabbing defensive rebounds last year, which is a stark difference from being 22nd in defensive rebound percentage this year i think both because of the personnel and because of the lack of available personnel this is where it's really manifesting itself so i I do think that that is the primary concern right now yeah i did not realize they were uh second in defensive rebound this is perkley in the glass i didn't realize they were in the top three of defensive rebounding last year so that's my mistake they did i'm using nba.com to be clear on those they dropped off in the playoffs and so maybe that's what i'm remembering but even then that's way i'm looking at the numbers there that's way off of what my perception was so I find, again, I find it tough to believe that that would be the sole reason, but we are kind of on the same page where it's unless they do something in the, like by the trade deadline, I don't, I don't know that they're going to be in that four or five contender loop. I thought about making my question, like whether they're going to acquire at least two rotation pieces at the trade deadline. Um, but I, I decided that was a little too easy. Uh, I don't know that I would, I don't actually, if you went buy or sell the heat, making a major move at the deadline, I don't know what I would actually pick about that, to be honest with you. So, so much has changed with Giannis off the market. Like they, all their moves were geared around towards maintaining cap flexibility for next off season. So and the move is, if you want to star, it's Bradley Beal. And I just don't know. It depends on how Washington would feel about Tyler hero as the, the centerpiece of that. I'd probably sell it, but who knows? We are onto the bucks though. I have and. I think this is more relevant now because last year when there were so many injuries, you could easily call. I had him as a, when the season wrapped up, I think I had him as a top 12 player in the player rankings. Chris Middleton, buy or sell, top 20 player in the NBA. I think that's an easy buy for me. 
Would you no, he, go as high as top 15? I think it gets tough when you're looking at how well Paul George has played, Kevin Durant. Those are players that weren't healthy last year. Um, hopefully, Carl Anthony Towns comes back from COVID, and he's been a monster this season. Top 20 seems a- ambitious enough. And I, Yeah, I think just having like KD available and Steph available and, and all of that changes it a little bit. And I would probably be more likely to have him towards 20 than towards 15, as small a gap as that is. But we're still talking about a guy who is averaging 21.9.6.2 rebounds, 5.7 assists. He's, he's joining the 50-40-90 club yet again. Uh, he is just an unbelievably dynamic and versatile scorer and remains a perfect complement to Giannis Antetokounmpo. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I didn't think that you were too high when you had him going into the bubble, I think, as, like, the number 10 player in the league and caught a little flack for that. Like, that seemed, like, kind of reasonable based on where he's playing, and it's kind of similar this year where he's not glamorous. He's never going to to have the kind of star power enjoyed by other players of his caliber, but he is that good. Yeah, and look, people point to can he? It's it's it shouldn't be an issue of can he be a number two on a title contender? Like he's he's been one, for starters. And there's been iffy playoffs. Like you know, he turns into the best player in the league against that series in Boston a few years ago. Um, but then he stumbles. I think when they played the Raptors um, in 2019, maybe if I'm remembering correctly. And then last year against the Heat, like they lose that series after Giannis, but like Chris Middleton was really like keeping them in games at points. Look, he's 73rd. He's in the 73rd percentile of isolation efficiency this year. And that's basically par for the course. He was in the 74th percentile last year. So that's not new. He's hitting 47% of his catch and shoot threes. He's hitting 44.4% of his pull up threes. And that's not even no. I don't expect it to remain there. But he was at, I think, close to 40% last year on that number. This guy is really good. And there's no, have we seen, he was at 37.2% on pull up threes last year, in case anybody wanted to. This is just a really good basketball player he can score at every level even though his game can stall out before the rim i think at times um if you know if you want to quibble about have we seen too much of him in um crunch time situations this year for milwaukee where i last time i checked he was like his usage um in crunch time was like pretty freaking high i'll double check that as i'm talking now like yeah you can probably quibble over that um he's yeah he's just averaging the most shots for them in crunch time at the moment uh, he's also he's also slashing 60, 40, 100 in crunch time. That's four games for a total of basically 20 minutes, but that's still just like the, the thing with him, and this does not make him better than Giannis. I just want to make that clear, is he's, he's and overall six of 10 in the clutch this year. Like those are pretty good numbers. He's just, he's, he's less of a liability on the perimeter. I don't know, like teams aren't going to care about Giannis dribbling into a pull-up three. They're not going to care about Giannis's mid-range game. For what you need in crunch time, there could be situations in the half court where like you don't have a ton of this momentum. Like It might just make more sense to have the ball in Chris Middleton's hands. Giannis is so good. I just want to make that clear. He's just he's so good. But we've seen that he can be almost solvable in those situations where defenses tighten up in the half court. I don't mean this to say that Chris Middleton is more valuable to the Bucks or anything, but I, I feel like he's sort of been because of how video gamey Giannis's numbers are and because of how the Bucks have topped out that we're not putting we're not assigning enough blame to the the aggregate picture here, which is just Giannis's struggles looking at what he shot at the free throw line in situations. Mike Budenholzer. We need to talk about this isn't a Chris Middleton isn't a number two. It's that the Bucks are flawed because of many reasons, or have been to this point, I will say. And I don't think Chris Middleton is close. Maybe he's like I don't think he's one of the top three reasons why this team has not or maybe will not win a title with this core. I think an interesting way to put it is that Giannis guarantees that this team is a title contender 
but it's not winning a title without P. Chris Middleton. I would agree. And I just don't look, here's the other thing is like, if you give, I'm, I'm just going to be honest. If you exchange Chris Middleton with Bradley Beal, are the bucks appreciably better? I guess maybe. I'm not sure because of Middleton's defensive ability too. And they pro- they're probably comparable passers at this point. Like we're just looking at the numbers. So I, I would put him in the Bradley Beal tier where it's like, you know, Bradley Beal, I think he'll inherently have more fluids over the offense because he is a number one option, at least while Westbrook's not there. And, and, so, and if the Wizards get to play games, obviously. But with Middleton, it's like, I think he's closer to like the Bradley Beal level where it's could they maybe, Bradley Beal probably has a better chance of making All-NBA in a given season. So perhaps you still put him above there. But he's closer to that type of star territory than people traditionally credit him. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'd, I'd be more, I, I think I still have, Beal ahead of him in personal rankings, even if Beal wouldn't necessarily be as strong a fit on this specific Milwaukee roster. But I would still have Middleton in like that, that, you know, you mentioned Kyrie Irving earlier as a, as a potential top 15 guy. Like I, I think that Middleton is largely in that same bucket, just in very different aesthetic ways. And the thing that we're never going to get to see, but like Bradley Beal has shown that having him doesn't amount to a playoff berth. Even when the minutes with the Bucks, they're slaughtering people when Middleton plays without Giannis, like that the the lineups there matter and that's not his full time role. So we're probably never gonna get that taste for Middleton. I don't think we need to to declare that he's a viable number two on a contender. I'm with you. So moving on to the New York Knicks, I'm going to recycle a question from the Chicago Bulls section of this this episode, and that is does New York currently have a, a centerpiece of a future contender on its roster right now. We can we can look anywhere from R.J. Barrett to Emmanuel Quickly. I, I I think I'm obligated to mention Frank Nielakina because of you. Um, Obi Toppin, Mitchell Robinson. Like, are are any of those guys potential number ones on a title team? No. There's an look. That's not to say I think Knicks fans will, if they listen to this podcast, will be angry because they believe that the media is super low on R.J. RJ has had a pretty good year, and the fact that he's worked himself out of a rut because he was kind of down there for a while after a pretty good start to the year, that matters a great deal. But there needs to be – I just don't – offensively, I don't know that it's it's tenable for him to be – You know, he might be able to put up numbers, and he can be a, an engine of an offense, and he can be – maybe his in-between game will start hitting better. I just – I don't see it. I when I watch him, I just don't. I don't see even when he has these really good games. I'm not sure that I see it. I don't think Mitchell Robinson can ever be that guy. Uh, Julius Randle's the numbers are fun, but he's not going to be that player. If you're asking about their 2021 pick, I mean maybe, but they're so they're so good at the moment that their 2021 pick isn't going to be as consequential as I think as any everyone thought. It almost feels like they're working their way into like Orlando Magic trajectory. Where it's like they might be a little too good to escape the mediocrity treadmill for a while. Like if I don't, I don't think that this is an unsustainable performance from this team. Like being a play-in contender in the Eastern Conference, I, I to be clear, I, I actually originally had this question be about R.J. Barrett because I think he's the most intriguing option, and, and Dan talked me down from that. Uh, well, he's the. Would you? I think as of right now, who else would you put as that? Unless you're so high on Emmanuel quickly, quickly. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or, I mean, Mitchell Robinson kind of in, like, a Rudy Gobert vein where, like, he could eventually be so impactful on defense that True. he could be a non-traditional number one on a title team. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think it's got to be Barrett. And, yeah, yeah I, I'm with you. I'm going to sell the idea that one is currently on the roster. Even if I'm not yet ready to back down from my idea that, that R.J. Barrett is going to be one of the most improved players in the NBA by the end of the season. I think it, that, as, as you said, working his way out of that rut showed a lot. 
I think if you told me that I'm just like, I mean, he's not like this exceptional finisher at the rim yet. His in-between game is there, but you know, shooting 40 something percent on mid rangers is, I don't know what that is. If you could tell me he's going to develop into like a really good finisher at the rim and shoot league average on off the dribble jumpers, maybe I'll change my mind because he has some positional size on defense. Um, he can get just looking at his, he's, he's a pretty good passer on offense, uh, and then, like, you know, for if you're going to play him at the two, they're just so big that he's going to win positional rebounds there like he's been doing. The thing that I I thought you were going to ask about their defense, to be honest with you, just because of where they're at this season, um, as we're recording this, and this is per cleaning the glass, so it's fin- fil- it tries to filter out the noise by filtering out garbage time. The Knicks are fourth in points allowed per 100 possessions. The thing that just gets me is they are um, – 29th in shot location effective field goal percentage expectation and that's because they're 28th in the frequency with which opponents attempt shots at the rim and they're 26th in the frequency with which opponents attempt shots from the three-point line and it's like that's not great and i would have sold their defense hard you know I, i grant hughes another friend of the podcast has written about this a number of times at bleach report about how you know, they, they're allowing so many wide open threes and they just aren't falling. And that's not something a defense typically has control over. Even if you're ma- maximizing who's taking those wide open threes, like there's still NBA players taking wide open threes. Yeah, um, like teams are shooting going to regress. Teams are shooting 30.1% on above the break threes against them. That's not going to continue. I might be able to buy their sixth in rim protection. I might be able to buy that just because of the activity of Nerlens Noel and Mitchell Robinson. And because they, their lineups are so big, that even when you have like really bad defenders and uh, I don't know if this is a make culpa, but Julius Randle has been probably playing the best defense of his career for what it's worth to anybody, but he's fully bought in. They're, they're so big that containing the ball just might be easier in almost every position. I mean, even a manual quickly for a guard, what is he six, four or something like that. So, um, and having RJ be the two at six, seven, I could buy into their rim protection, even though there's a ton of volume there, the three point shooting makes me, uneasy but it does feel like and zach lois said this there feels like a rhyme or reason to what they're doing and that's more than you could say about the past like 12 iterations of this team so i would i would buy this defense as like a top half unit i wouldn't buy it as a top five maybe not even a top 10 unit which is still a stark improvement from where they were last year the other thing too is like we need the, the context of this season where it's just like they could still end up being top five but like that doesn't mean that they're actually a top five defense because of you know teams that they've played strength of schedules are going to be wonky for every team who is missing during those games i haven't taken a deep enough look at their schedule but i've seen a good deal of their games and they are excellent at turning these deep on defense they can turn games into slogs and so um that's credit to them they're they are they are fun i will say that i just don't know if it's the type of substantive fun that you can buy into long term and right that's not me trying to shit on them. That's just how I feel. Uh, Orlando, you know I struggled with this one because I didn't want to say buy or sell. The Magic should blow it up. We both would buy that, and we've talked about it on a previous pod. I'm talking about Aaron Gordon. His value around the league seems to be all over the place. I'm going to say that they can get a top eight. Buy or sell the idea that they can get a top 18 pick for, for Aaron Gordon. Top 18, top, top 20. 18? I'm top trying to be 20? super specific because lottery is so tough. Um, so I'm going to say top 18. I'm going to sell it. I think that there's there's just as as intriguing as the idea of Aaron Gordon remains. We've been talking about the idea of Aaron Gordon rather than Aaron Gordon the player for what feels like a decade now. I think it's actually getting close to a decade now. Um, and between that and 
the league-wide knowledge that Orlando is just kind of stuck as this middling team in the East. There's not really much of a incentive to like give in to their lack of leverage here. Um, so I don't I don't think that anything more than a back-end first-round pick would be coming if the Magic even choose to shop him. Yeah, I'm going to buy. Um, I think he's still underrated defensively, that we just don't talk enough about it for what he's able to do. The, the passing stuff from him is real. You don't necessarily want him operating off the dribble too much, but he's at least turned into, oh, he can dribble into pick and rolls, and he can facilitate from standstill positions for his team. The three ball is falling at a good enough clip this year. Uh, he's at over 35% overall, and he is hitting on his catch-and-shoot looks 44.7%. If you... If you're a team, and I guess I probably should have come up with a list of teams that I could see, you know, giving up what would be higher value first for him. Um, and I don't necessarily know, I guess, who springs to mind, but like, you know, what if Charlotte was like, hey, we're going for the play in this season. We're just light on bigs anyway. I don't know what the money becomes for them, but he would be a great fit there um, in lineups where you could play a lot of five there just behind Cody Zeller, but also you have Miles Bridges. He's malleable, so he could play with him and Cody Zeller at the same time. I think he would be, a f- and this isn't going to be a top, well, I guess maybe it technically could be. Um, but and, and look, some of these picks that would be traded for him would be into the future. So is it, I guess the, the notion should be buy or sell the idea that Orlando gets more than just a throwaway first round pick for Aaron, Aaron Gordon. Because I, I think I'm still selling it. I'm going to buy it. Like if you're Denver, like he would be such a good fit in Denver. Uh, if you're if you're Golden State, like such a good and such a good fit there, I would think. Could you imagine him and Draymond Green defensively? Maybe even play them with James Wiseman. Talk about playing big. Like that could do things defensively. And if you simplify his offensive role, if you're a team, like I don't think the I think if you look at him and say, hey, we want him to finish plays in transition, catch lobs, maybe be more of a screener on the other end. Will we let him? You know, maybe try some face ups. Um, sure, but we want him to space the floor more off catch and shoots. And then, you know, do you give him a ceremonial, you know, face two face up to three face up touches um, or possessions, I should say, per game um, or from the, whatever he wants to do in the post? Maybe. I think there are teams that could should talk themselves into it. And look, he's only 25. I would do it. And look, another team, think about Aaron Gordon in Miami this year. I'm not sure how much he helps their rebounding per se. But when you're talking about people they've been running out at the four this year, that's just someone. Imagine yeah, him next to Bam. And look, Bam is kind of spacing the floor this year, so maybe that would work. He'd be a great fit in Minnesota. I just don't know. Minnesota's like, they're so bad this year that it's what do you give up to get him? Like how much of that makes sense? So I can come up with teams. I think you get more than a low-end first for him. And if you if you don't have to give up more than that, he should be on someone else's team already is just how I would frame that. All right, one word answer here. Aaron Gordon will be on the Orlando Magic past the trade deadline. No, I already predicted he wouldn't be, so that's okay. I'm going to stand by it. Okay. So let's move on to the 76ers. Uh, this is one where I, I just I don't know where you're going to go, and and my my statement is that the supporting cast performance is going to be sustainable. Uh, this is the, the 76ers are 12 and and 12 and five at the time they're recording this. Joel Embiid is unquestionably a MVP candidate. But they've also been getting so many contributions from the non-stars on this team. If it's even fair to call some of them non-stars, like Tobias Harris, who is having what's probably the best year of his career, averaging 19.4 points, shooting 50-40-90. Seth Curry, when he's been available, uh, he's shooting 56% from three. Danny Green makes the team better when he's on the court. Shake Milton has been a revelation off the bench. Tyrese Maxey has shown flashes. But are we buying this this supporting cast being good enough to to make the 76ers as good as their record appears. 
Yeah, I'm there. There's, I, I think when you look at the supporting cast performances, I don't know if you see anyone playing noticeably above their head where it's, you know, a healthy Seth Curry probably isn't shooting like 56% from three all year. But at the same time, he's a really good shooter and his shots are more simplified. Tyrese Maxey's probably the one that you could point to and be like, hey, can they give him real minutes in, in the playoffs? But he does look like a three-level scorer. He's very feisty um, on the ball when he's defending. But just because he's a rookie, like maybe you just don't trust that. I mean, Shake Milton is he hinted at some of this stuff last year for them. The player you should probably be concerned about is just Ben Simmons on offenses and putting up these gargantuan numbers. He's still really good on defense. So I'll buy that their supporting cast can can be this good. I don't look at any one player and say of their supporting cast of the non Simmons, non Embiid tier that they couldn't do this. And and Harris just having more space to operate and his role has been simplified under Doc Rivers, it almost makes sense. That he's he's in the fifty forty he's in the fifty forty five ninety club right now. Tobias Harris. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm going to buy it as well, and I think it's a pretty strong buy for me. It, it felt it feels like a validation of the the preseason takes that like, hey, Daryl Morey actually put the right kind of pieces around that Ben Simmons Joel Embiid pairing. They have wing defenders. They have guys who can space the court. They have players who can actually create their own shots and shots for others coming off the bench. And because they have so many good pieces, players are, are allowed to focus more on what they're doing well. I mean, like Matisse Teibel is, is never overextended on offense in those 14.9 minutes he's playing per game, which allows him to focus on being a game-changing defender. I think my only complaint is that Mike Scott is probably playing a little bit too much I'd prefer to see more of like Isaiah Joe or Furkan Korkmaz, just someone at else the four, yeah. who does more at the four. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't, I don't think that even as Tobias Harris and Seth Curry inevitably see their shooting percentages come back to earth a little bit, we're probably going to see Danny Green hit more shots. And it feels like everything is just going to balance it out. And this 76ers team is a team we're going to be talking about deep into the postseason this year. Currently the best record in the East. I guess the one thing that could shake up their supporting cast would be if they make that major move. How does that change the dynamic for them? I don't know that they're – even if they – they're going to make a move because Daryl Morey is in charge of this team. There's going to be a move made at the deadline. I don't know that it's going to be massive enough to really just be seismic. I don't think they're going to give up Ben Simmons or Bradley Beal. Like that I mean, I, I, have, I have no – basis for saying this other than pure speculation like we don't have the sources required to to make this claim but i feel like daryl morey is going to want to prove that he unlike his predecessors in philadelphia can win with joel Embiid and ben simmons it's a it's a test of competence and ego that he he wants to win with those incumbents by putting the right pieces around them and showing that hey he can go out and win in a style that's different from doing everything possible to acquire the most stars. The only thing I'll say about that is it does seem like he was willing to trade Ben Simmons for James Harden. And I don't know that that's, that's different, right? Like we're talking about a guy who's finished top three in MVP voting for roughly the last 30 years. I'm not a three time reigning scoring champ. Like I think that's different. Yeah. I'm not saying I, I personally would not have done it, but I'm not saying that it's, you know, the stance that you would have is, is completely valid. I'm just saying, I don't know that if he did adopt that I, stance that you were just talking about, I would call it a fresh adoption would just be my point. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. I think it's, it's new because like, of course he was going to go try to get James Harden because he's smart and who wasn't going to go try to get James Harden for their team. But I don't think that he's just going to, to want to get that second tier star like a Bradley Beal just because that option is available to him. The Toronto Raptors 
uh, we were in lockstep on the Sixers, though, right? Both buying that their supporting yeah. cast to be sustainable. The Toronto Raptors, this is probably me swing. This was the low-hanging fruit for me. Pascal Siakam, buy or sell Pascal Siakam is going to be fine. Can you define fine for me? Pascal Siakam is still going to be a top 25 player by the end of the season. I'll sell that. Okay. Yeah, I think had you said he's going to be an all-star caliber player, that's where I think I'm more on the fence, where I think he's going to be one of those guys who, you know, we're, we're talking about him as an injury addition to the all-star roster because he's capable of making the team but doesn't really have that solidified case. It, it, it feels to me like he was a little bit solved last year, whereas the, the Raptors asked him to do more in the playoffs and teams adjusted to him and, you know, the spins to nowhere, as you've put it, uh, just <laughs> there, there are, there are just too many flaws in his game for him to be that all around player that Toronto wants him to be. I think we were just a little too quick with the star proclamations here and that's fine. Like he's still a very valuable second or third best player on a contender but the Raptors are currently asking him to be the best one, and that's that's just not going to work. See, and so I buy that he is going. We had them when we ranked them, and you were part of this. I don't know what he – I forgot what he ended up being in NBA math. He was 19 for BR's NBA 100 predicting this year. I don't, I don't think he's going to finish that high. Spoiler alert. And there, I do agree with a lot of the stuff that you said, but because Tor- Toronto is still trying to overextend him. Like this is just year two of his being the offensive system, and they're basically still trying to push that. And I don't think – you know, other team. He still has Kyle Lowry, so it's not like he doesn't have any help. But like Fred Van Fleet is not the best shot creator. He's a good shot maker when he isn't creating for himself. There's just a ton of pressure on him when you're looking at the personnel that's going to make it harder. He's still he's getting to the rim less than he ever has, which is down from a career low in getting to the rim last year. He still kind of has some nice touch around there. There needs to be like when he is attacking, like there he can't bail out as much of his drives and. Uh, the the turnovers in traffic for him, they just still feel like they're they're such an is- issue, and his decision making needs to be better there. He still only has a twelve nine turnover rate in general, which is not super high. But when you're looking at, yeah, I mean, he's um, you know throwing weird passes that don't make any like there's there's clearly problems there when defenses are able to um, like just throw bodies at him, and he doesn't really seem to know how to react, whether it's to settle for this mid-ranger or like we've put it, the spins to nowhere. The spins just directly into the defense. Not going to be the best guy at drawing fouls. It seems like people kind of know like what's going to happen there, and that aspect of his game has probably suffered a little bit. I'm just, they're still trying to work through him so much. Why can't we count on him improving incrementally as the season goes on? Maybe the biggest mistake was just expecting that that leap like he had been showing and the signs were on the wall last year because his efficiency kind of dropped, but this role that they're trying to groom him into, it is so huge. It is so massive that it's not just this like tiny aspect of branching out. They're basically trying to make him an an offensive system unto himself. And you can even see it with some of the touches in crunch time he's had this year too. I don't know. Maybe this season is the more ambitious part that I'm trying to buy or sell, but I think he ends up being fine. And if he's not, I still wouldn't be worried going into next season. Like it feels maybe it's a personnel thing offensively around him. And maybe I'm just so far off base there, but I remain a firm believer in, no, I, in Pascal Siakam. I think it's for me, it's more of a condemnation of the Toronto Raptors than Pascal Siakam, where it's like they expected too much too soon of him and then built the roster accordingly, and it's biting them now. Well, is where it, they're just they're tasking them with too much 
especially in crunch time, and it just doesn't quite make sense. And also to, to clarify your point from earlier, in Crystal Basketball um, at NBA Math, going into the season, we had him ranked at 21. He was directly ahead of Chris Paul and Trey Young, and he was directly behind Rudy Gobert and Paul George. He was the uh, second to the last of the all-NBA candidates. Okay, yeah, so pretty close there with where we ended yeah. up at, at BR2. I don't, clearly he's not going to be at that level. I still view him as this top 25-ish player that where uh, looking at the long term i think i'm looking more like top 35 ish there needs to be great he needs more offensive variance off the dribble or at least variance in his decision making or just whatever you want to call it and i think there's potential to get there i'm also wondering if it did toronto like do we know that they weren't prepared for this and maybe i mean the fact that he missed the game for disciplinary reasons which when you're playing terrence davis at all is just a questionable decision at best as an organization but I, or, or as Raptors Twitter likes to put it, redacted. Oh, I like that. Redacted, when you're playing redacted at all. So uh, I mean, it, there definitely does – yeah, I, I guess you're right. There's definitely a level of unexpectancy here where they probably thought he was going to be better. But I don't know, just based off what they did to the roster over the offseason where you lose Ibaka, you lose Marcus All, unless you thought, like like I guess I did, that Ananobi was going to turn into this uh, all-star basically this year. I was year. right there with you, yeah. yeah so maybe that – like that's – the. Expectations have fallen elsewhere. Let me be clear about that too. Is I think Fred Van Fleet has I don't think his contract is bad. I think he's really good. He would have he has a chance to be a ceremonial all-star this year. I don't know that he's just improved a bunch on offense. He's still hitting the same shots, still struggling to finish at the rim, not great at hitting these pull-up jumpers. So the same sort of flaws are still there. He's just still a really good player. There's a lot of I think there are a lot of things that they that have not gone to plan or that they didn't hit on and Pascal Siakam's struggles, while being one of them, are also a symptom of sort of those uh, those other problems on the team. That seems fair. So if that was if that was the low hanging fruit, then my fruit here is so low hanging that it's growing up from the ground in the form of a you, bush. You dug it up because it, it went rotten, and then someone buried it, and you, you dug it up. Buy or sell? Bradley Beal is gone from Washington before the trade deadline. This is so tough. He should. I buy the idea that he should That's be gone. That's not the question. I know. That's not my question. I'm going to sell because it's it's the Wizards and there there might be this I don't I call it a trace, but maybe it's just like this huge impetus of stubbornness because they gave up a first for Russell Westbrook and if he gets healthy, they could still talk themselves into making noise in the East. This feels like a situation where they could also look at it and say, well, are the offers for Bradley Beal going to get any worse over the summer when he has a full season left as opposed to a season and a half? Probably not. So I'm going to sell. I'm right there with you for the exact same reasons. Uh, it, it all comes down to Westbrook being there. You know, as, as long as he's there, especially because they gave up that first round pick to acquire him, there has to be optimism in D.C., even if there shouldn't be. They also paid Davis uh, Bertans, too, where it's like we have to see at least the first season of this whole thing through. Yeah, but I mean, like with Thomas Bryant hurt. And no really they feasible shouldn't. replacement for be- him. They, they shouldn't. They should absolutely trade him for whatever they can get before the deadline. If you had to pick the team to just go get him, just pay the cost that it is, which team would that be? Miami. I guess they would be the team. I just question whether they have the – and look, Brian Rinhorst um, of ESPN wrote about how there's just a shortage of now first-round picks that could be traded – I think he over-exaggerated a little bit because there are things that teams could do, like remove protections on ones that they owe so they can trade deeper in the future. But we talked about how the what the Pelicans got for Drew and even Davis and what uh, – wow. This is uh, James Harden commanded from Houston. 
that the value for Bradley Beal is going to be through the roof. Maybe it's actually lower just if there is this scarcity of first-round picks to trade. Mm-hmm. Um, Miami would be the one if I'm, I'm just not convinced on their their assets. If we're forgetting about realism, I'll, I'll put the Toronto Raptors out there just because everything that we just said about Pascal Siakam is partially, if not fully fixed, if you have Bradley Beal there. Would you give up Pascal Siakam for Bradley Beal? I mean, yeah, probably. I think the the ceiling is significantly higher. He's still under contract for another year. You can sell him as the centerpiece of a, an organization that is antithetical to everything that Washington has done recently. Um, so yeah, I, I think I think that I would. But ideally, you're acquiring him without giving up Siakam and just throwing them every pick that you can muster. And you know maybe you're giving up OG Ananobi. Um, or, or some other piece because that Beal Siakam pairing would be super ideal. Yes, it would. And actually, to your point about that, so you would give up OG for Beal. Yeah. yeah. And would you give up what I've thought about? And I thought I, mean, about I would this, give up Siakam too. Well, I I go back and forth on that one because then you're gonna like have Van Fleet and Beal. I guess that's a yeah, that's probably fine. I guess what you could do if you're the Raptors, though, and the fact that the Knicks have so much cap space would make this feasible, is you can move moving those poison pill extensions um, because OG Ananobi, to the Raptors, he's only worth whatever he's making this season and outgoing trade money. But to inbound for the Wizards, it's the average of all his salaries, including those extension years. The Knicks have cap space, so you can figure out a way to get Norman Powell to the Knicks or something and move. If you can do OG and Fred Van Fleet as the baseline, and then maybe there has to be picks or something in there, I would totally do that if I were the if I were the Raptors. The team I was going to pick is if they don't have to move Ben Simmons. If it's all the picks and you're using Maxi and you have um, Matisse Seibel, Philly would be. As long as we're just dreaming there, that would be the team. I don't know that I would move Ben Simmons for him. It does make sense in you know functionally for a lot of things, and I think he's a better fit with Joel Embiid than James Harden would have been. But that would be the team I would uh, immediately look at. And there are less realistic ones. Like imagine if you could get him to Dallas, but it's just like. Unless Washington wants Kristaps Porzingis, who I'd move in a heartbeat for Bradley Beal. I want to make that clear. I don't in a heartbeat, maybe yeah. even quicker than that. Um, I'm just I'm glad that you didn't say the Suns because I don't want to have that argument again. Uh, they're not the team I would pick. I think they could if DeAndre Ayton was on the table, but they have to give up so many salary thoughts. The last team I'll mention, and this might support your buy or sell from before. You want a best player on a contender material in Chicago. You put Bradley Beal there, and the and the party changes. And I don't know that. You could use Zach Levine as the baseline if you were making other packages, but if you made it strictly young players and salary filler, I don't know what your defense looks like with Levine and Beal, but those two could do some damage. I'll, I'll give you a hint. It, it doesn't look good. <laughs> so, I will say this about Levine. Still bad on defense, but I think they've sort of decided, like, okay, fuck it, we're still going to throw him at these basically star like player types. And relative to like that assignment, like you could be bad defending star players, and it's it's more okay to be bad, if that makes any sense. No, it's totally fa- fa- viable and fair. Uh, that does it for us. This went way longer than I thought it would have. We'll have to live up to the eight, 75 minutes when we go um, to the Western Conference. My indie one took us off the rails. We spent like probably 10 or 15 <laughs> minutes on the Pacers. Uh, please, we, we spent 10 or 15 minutes on the Pacers? All right, I spent 10 or 15 minutes without taking <laughs> a breath just on the Pacers. and I hate. Usually that's reserved for Frank Nielakinic takes. I have no Frank Nucular takes other than I'm going to be heartbroken if the Knicks end up letting him walk in restricted free agency, which means I'm going to need to be prepared to be heartbroken. Guys, gals, everybody, uh, please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you're getting your podcast. It still helps us out a ton. Until next time, 
we one, hope that you enjoyed this discussion, this rambling, whatever you want to call it. And two, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, still really good if even if he doesn't finish top three in defensive player of the year voting at the end of the season, Miles Turner. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.